This is another edition of Musical Explorations, and we're going to continue looking at why music developed into the atonal, what, why things became atonal, why it was so attractive. Of course, we, we understand that Schoenberg started the dodecophonic system, and uh, uh, 12 tones, 12 tones that make noise, cacophony, and... Uh, and and the types of a very abstract music that he was writing, the disillusion of the regular phrase, all those type of things that were happening, and why it was so attractive. Uh, and we know it was attractive because a lot of composers were writing it all the way up to the 1970s. We had composers still writing 12-tone techniques and teaching it in schools, and it was uh, still considered out there and, and, uh, and new, in, in a sense, uh, for a lot of people. Um, but, and it, and it led to a couple of bad situations. One, if composers didn't write that way, they were considered not serious. And the second thing is it, it allowed, uh, it, it kind of alien, started alienating audiences. If, if indeed this was the, uh, uh, the way music was going to go, people were saying, well, why do I, I can't, I don't have the time to spend this kind of energy and, and figure out what this music does. So um, the, the tonality, which was a, a part and parcel to music for, for over three or 400 years, this development and drive into tonality and equal temperate system, now these guys are saying, that well, doesn't make any difference. None of that stuff makes any difference. Forget the acoustical justifications of it. There are some. Well, we'll we're going to ignore those. We're just going to write this abstract music. And it left a lot of composers in a very strange place. So if I wanted to write music like that, which I did, one of my pieces, I wouldn't be considered serious in, in many academic uh, institutions because regardless of whether the music is using new ideas and new ways of blending tonality, which is basically what I was doing, it wouldn't have been considered serious because it wasn't abstract enough. It wasn't, It wasn't this kind of strange abstraction that, that uh, somehow you were supposed to write uh, right out of the, the box. You know, remember, composers have a learning curve. You have to do certain things and learn them and then develop a style. You don't come out of the, out of the womb uh, fully developed, so to speak. I mean, there's, there's not many Mozarts, and even he had to learn. So, But remember, uh, dom the common practice period, the harmonies, were dominated music forever. This, this were right here. Okay, or this, uh, this one. Okay, those dominated Western music. Uh, different types of progressions. We also learn that when composers abandon these things, cadences, as it's called a cadence, uh, one to five to one, remember from other shows, uh, they start using other uh, factors like repetition, just repetition of chords.
Okay, slows down, it ends. That's the cadence. It worked as a cadence. Shifting harmonic weight is basically what happened. This is a, a submediate sixth of the scale, an A in the key of C, A minor, and this is a, a C back to tonic. So just if you start it and end it on A, you'd think it's an A, even though in the key signature it would look like a C. All right, uh, they use a whole bunch of other effects. Now here's something that's interesting. Coming up with the beginning of a piece, it's easy to start music. Very easy to start pieces, composers, oh, I'm gonna got this idea, the theme, you know, I'm gonna make this theme. Uh... A theme, I've come up with a theme, oh boy. Okay, now, what do you do with that theme? You develop it, that's a little more difficult, finding how do you develop that theme uh, to make it uh, uh, interesting. How do you do that? You develop the theme, you try to do something to make it interesting, and also something that you can work through a system, and then you have to come to an ending. Well, it turns out that ending is the hardest thing to do in a piece. It's one of the major differences in, in, in classical music and well-thought-out music and regular pop music is that it ends. How many pop pieces have you heard that just drift out and end, they fade out, that's the end of them? How many of you heard that just, they don't end, they just kind of go off into wherever, or they have that same, that same thing they're doing, uh, big, but it's bigger now. Now, the, instead of having this cadence, They'll do it like. They'll make it bigger, but it's still the same thing. It's not really thought out. Writing an ending is the hardest thing to do. It's one of the, in fact, all the life, you can start things all the time. It's easy, you can start things, but it's how you end. The ending is where the secrets are. Beethoven, in one of his symphonies, had an ending that lasts like 20 minutes. Well, it ended already. He kept going on and on and on and then extending this thing out. And it happened a lot. You know, Wagner used that idea with, he had, with the deceptive cadences. He would think that you're going to end. He would come up and say, he'd come up in a key. This is just an example. But instead of going to here, he'd go to here. So he'd come from this, this, this G He'd drop down a half a step. So you deceptively think it's going to go someplace, it ends up going somewhere else. So there's a number of pieces. Think of the number of pieces that simply fade out. You know, popular music's full of that stuff. So endings are trickly, uh, especially if a composer is using a tonality. How do you end an atonal piece? Let's let, take a listen to a piece of atonality and see how it ends. Hey, that's Schoenberg, six little pieces. This is just the first one. But it actually, it ends uh, like this, which is a very, uh, um, a very interesting 
uh, way to end the piece, but uh, this is the chords that end the piece. Does that end? Uh, I don't know. I mean, in the context of the piece, you might think it does. But writing endings is very difficult. We also saw some of the things that composers used to extend the tonality. Remember, the tonality was in it. We learned about Greek modes, you know, the foundation of our equal temperament harmonic system, the Dorian mode, of course. It's like the, if I just play on the white notes on the piano, the Dorian mode is on D. If I just play up to D from D here to D here, it's the Dorian mode. Okay, if I play the Aeolian mode, it starts on A. Just play all the white notes. That's the Aeolian mode. And the Phrygian, if you start on E. Remember, we talked about Brahms. He liked to use that Phrygian and the modifications of Phrygian in different keys. Instead of just E, he would do it in C or A. He would do it different ways. We also learned about alternative scales, a whole tone scale, which was just whole tones, right? It's a six-note scale. And we learned about uh, pentatonic and symmetrical scales. Stravinsky likes symmetrical scales. And also um, artificial scales, any scale that you can come up with. That's an artificial scale. Uh, early tonality uh, um, that avoided key centers, such as the Liszt bagatelle, we heard that. Uh, that's a, it's basically atonal simply because it's, it uses chords. So it uses just regular chords. But it does so in a non-harmonic way. In other words, it uses chords like, like secession. Here, and then I would go to here. Cadence, no five in there at all. Just all over different tones. You can use them anywhere. Just make make up stuff. And we heard about Bartok, what he did, and we also saw how why Schoenberg developed the dodecacophonic or twelve tone serial system. Why he did it? He did it to extend the romantic ideas and the and the use of of, of harmonies and chords that were in a logical system because the harmonic systems of the day and the um, in the books wouldn't wouldn't cover the extended harmonic techniques. How are you going to do it? It, it got ridiculous sometimes. So Schoenberg started with serial techniques in, uh, like I said, 1921. It worked on them for a long time before he, he actually told anybody about them before he wrote a piece with them. It was even even longer. So uh, while Germany was wallowing in this musical expressionism, because that was the big thing now, the musical expressionism, and Mahler and Strauss, those people were doing that. There were a lot of other composers who were also tackling the problem of the persistence of this harmonic rules, these harmonic rules of the quote-unquote common practice period. And they were always looking for another way to write music using harmonies that were just as serious as Bach, Beethoven, uh, Brahms, uh, Schumann, uh, Mahler, uh, Stravinsky, any of those people. Stravinsky is one of the people doing that. But... But, but any of the people from the Romantic or the Classical era, just as serious and just as profound, but using a different system. Okay, we had Charles Ives.
Okay, that's an excerpt from Eyes for Symphony. Now, this is a huge work, and it, it, it's so rhythmically complex that it requires two conductors. One beats in one uh, rhythm, uh, and, and another beats in a completely other rhythm. Uh, but instead of tone rows, like it was developed by Schoenberg, Eyes used a different tone row methodology. He didn't use the 12-tone system, but he used a lot of different effects and a lot of different uh, ideas in his music to compose his pieces. And you can use these today. We can do all the same stuff. Um, he wrote works that were polytonal. You could even hear it in that little excerpt. That the, the, so he established this key of A, uh, so to speak, uh, and then uh, or E, and then went off into uh, uh, another whole another section of the piece, but done in a completely different key, like B flat. So you've got these two simultaneous things going on at the same time. In one of the works, he had a marching band come in, right? In the middle of the work, is playing away, just like a, a symphony would play. And then this marching band comes in and marches right through the orchestra and plays uh, uh, Stars and Stripes Forever or something like that, and then marches out of the, out of the hall. Uh, he did lots of things like that, a lot of uh, strange effects in his pieces to do this uh, uh, thing. Well, let's hear what that marching band stuff sounds like. What a wild piece. That is from uh, Charles Ives, Three Places in New England, and he uh, does that a couple times in the, in the context of the piece. Now, I could go through Ives. I could he uses lots of devices in his music, but remember, this is about styles, things that composers use to write. And one of the things that Ives uses is two completely separate musical pieces mixed up together and put together. I could go through all his works and find you examples of each of the little things. Some of them you would hear, some of you wouldn't hear. So it's easier for me just to, to play them. And that's what I'm going to do. Okay, the first tool that eyes and other composers use is called dissonance. Dissonance, there's two forms of tones that you hear. One is, is called consonance, which means the vibrations, the tone are all mo closer in sync. And dissonance is which they're not. So uh, this... Uh, C and this G, this would be called a consonance. It's harmonious to our ears. The tones match up. This C and this E match up. Okay, they match up. And the E and the G, they match up. That's a consonant sound. However, this F and the G, 
that vibration you hear in there, that's called dissonance, okay? That's, that's only a whole step here. But in a half step is even more dissonance. Okay, more of a clash of tones. So you have... progressively getting more dissonant from consonants, 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 dissonance, more dissonance. Okay, that's just two notes. Dissonances can also be when you add a note to a chord, like here's a C chord and I add an F sharp. There's a dissonance. The lower in the bass, the more vibrations there are. So if I play a C, E, G, and a C sharp, I get a lot of dissonances. If I play the C sharp and the F sharp together, C, E, G, and then F sharp and the G, even more dissonance, okay? So dissonance is one of the things that, uh, that Ives and other composers use when they're composing. The relation of this dissonance to these harmonies, to these consonances in a harmony. You can hear it. Okay, other thing they use is counterpoint. Counterpoint, I said before, is note against note. Like that. It's two different voices going on simultaneously. Rounds, kind of rounds, are, are counterpoint in a way. Uh, mix of rhythms. So uh, three in this hand, maybe, and two in this hand. That's three against two. And here approximately is four against five. These complex and mix of rhythms were used by composers quite a lot. Now, another thing that uh, Ives and other people use is repetition. So what's repetition is just repetition, but done in a different way. Instead of just standard repetition like this, they would vary things and do stuff and add other repetition elements in it and then vary it. So follow what I'm doing here. So that's five in my left hand, three in my right hand in a different key grouping, and uh, going in and out of phase. In other words, they're playing together, uh, all the notes playing together, like the following. Even though I'm playing three and five different uh, rhythms in each hand, or different note groupings in each hand, and I'm playing them all together, it does vary because you can hear the notes each time it's creating different harmonies. Now, if I, if I take that and out of phase, like what I was doing, going out of phase, then it even adds more rhythmic capability, but it's all just repetition. Also, uh, syncopation, you know, uh, uh, syncopation, like on the offbeat, things that are on the offbeat, like uh, reggae music, you know. Uh, uh.
then pretty soon all you hear is uh, the one, which would be. Just syncopation, things off the beat, right? One note off the beat, two notes off the beat. That's all that syncopation is. Polytonality. What is polytonality? Polytonality is playing something in, let's say, uh, C major here. Then I play in a completely different key, this. And then combine the two. It's kind of like counterpoint, except that it's in two completely different keys. So that ends up being both polytonal and polyrhythmic. Uh, also microtonality, we talked about that. How to make tones that are in between our normal lowest, uh, smallest interval, which is a half step here. This is C and C sharp. And how to take that and use, a, I, know, I use a bending thing on my keyboard, but to try to get it in between. So it's at that in-between sound, okay? Now, uh, what else? Uh, breaking repetition. Now, this is interesting. We tried to avoid strict repetition, but we wanted it to be still repeating, but asymmetrically repeating. So that maybe one time you would play a three against two situation, like... Uh, And then you'd play so you're breaking up that rhythmic complexity with another rhythm uh, just to provide just to provide difference and make make differences so it's not like composers hadn't uh, use these devices before. Uh, they've used all of them in some way or another. Not quite like the minimalists were using them with the things going in and out of phase, but certainly effects were used. And they didn't use it like repetition with such vehemence. Of course, you know, Respighi had lots of repetition in some of his works. But even though Eyes uh, wrote some traditional hymns and, and pieces that were more or less orchestrated folk music than pieces composed in a distinct style, each of his works are recognizable as Ives. It's very funny. He, he had a, a truly remarkably unique style. And on top of that, he rarely heard any of his pieces performed. He played as a church organist. He played every week. He was, an, uh, uh, I think he was a Methodist, but don't take me to church on that. Um, but he played every week in a, in a church. He was an organist. And he uh, 
uh, was very serious about uh, put playing in the, in the church and doing his church things, but he never really heard his bigger pieces performed in his lifetime, the symphonies and those type of things. But he still somehow consistently kept a style in all the stuff that he did. But why hasn't his music, I mean, it's really terrific stuff, why hasn't it found popular acceptance? We know that many American composers sought him out. You know, uh, we know that, I mean, Cowell came and saw him. Harrison became his personal friend. They edited his stuff. He, he was well-known, and he was known amongst the, the musical cognoscenti, but he wasn't known amongst the, the general public. One piece, maybe called The Unanswered Question, might have been the one that had some kind of a, a, a more popular appeal. And I think. The problem, of course, is that his works are so staggeringly difficult to per perform and stage that it, it, it's a daunting task, and you have to amass a lot of forces and have a lot of money to be able to pull them off. So, but Cowell and, and Harrison and, and a few other people that came and studied with Ives never adopted his style. They were doing their own thing and probably something that Ives would have supported. So um, let me hear, we'll hear a little bit of Cowell, where he was going, and we heard some, some Ives. I'm gonna play a little Ives excerpt again and then we'll play uh, a, a work of Cowell and a work of Harrison. These are his two most well-known students. Wow, really evocative. That's a piece called uh, Central Park in the Dark. It was supposed to be take a place in 1890s and foggy and at night in the dark. Now let's hear what uh, Henry Cowell did. Let's listen to his other real kind of famous student, and that's uh, Lou Harrison.
Now, let's go back to Ives' second symphony, and let's see if we can hear any similarities with what Harrison was doing. Remember, Ives was writing his stuff in the 30s. Harrison wrote his in the 1980s, 1982 to be precise. pretty straightforward music, even though separated by a lot of years. However, you have to say, I you know, presage certainly anything that, that Harrison or Cowell would have done in this sense. But Howell and, Cowell and Harrison went in completely different directions. Cowell and both Harrisons got involved with this whole Gamelon idea and doing the Gamelon music. So um, we, we have a, a kind of an interesting situation here because remember, though, this is a 19... 30s when Ives was writing his uh, symphonies and um, he was born in 1874 but uh, he was writing this is somewhat later in his life and he was writing these very abstract works and the symphony the second symphony even gets more abstract as it goes on and different things get involved with it uh, multi uh, two themes different themes and polyrhythm stuff like that it doesn't stay all saccharine like it is there but our western music is, is rooted really in musical systems that basically started in the Mideast. Um, it started with the, the Assyrians and the Sumerians and those people. Uh, the Mideasters and the Arab scholars, this is, this is pre-Greek. But even if you look at the map of Greece, where Aristotle came from, where uh, some of the scholars that w were considered Greek came when Greek had an empire, they were over in Turkey and in, in Lebanon, those areas over there, they weren't in the Greece that we know as Greece today. They lived in, in other areas. But the, they basically started our musical system, our musical thought. This was Mideastern thinking. The Romans, uh, the Greeks took it, codified it, made it into modes. And, and uh, the Romans took it also and, and refined those modes and used those modes. And then as the Roman Empire disintegrated and became the Holy Roman Empire, and finally disintegrated just into the Catholic Church, the, the music kind of stayed with it. The music and the modes and the, and the things that were going on musically were still staying kind of on the same progression forward. It was moving forward. Even though it went into the monks, into the churches, there was some elaborate counterpoint, some of that counter Palestinian counterpoint. In fact, I'm going to play some of it so you can hear just how complex some of that counterpoint got.
glorious stuff, glorious stuff. That's actually not Palestrina, that's Orlando de Lasus. And it's a Salmi, it's called Sami Poentitialis. So, anyway, it's for five voices. Believe it or not, that's all that it was, is five voices. It's amazing what he did with a, with a chorus in the, in the background, a small chorus. Uh, but the, this counterpoint got extremely complex, and, and um, this is all before our equal temperament system. You could actually hear a cadence in there. Blah, blah, blah. It was a, a cadence. So one of the shows I'm going to do is uh, going to come up in the future. It's called The Secret Language and musical systems. There's a whole bunch of them, and they uh, just like well, they said the slave songs, uh, uh, black slave songs, where uh, we're going to cross that river Jordan, was they were going to escape and things like that. Well, in the medieval times, and even before and after, the, the the monks would write these secret things in the in the motets and in the use music to signify certain things. And this went all the way up to Bach. And if you heard these certain uh, falling scales, or you heard certain things that meant certain things. Now, a lot of it is church-derived and and uh, and rhythm-derived. <clears throat> Other things that composers use as styles. Now, we know that there's style, like a, a style of music, like rock is now called a genre, but it's a style of music, and and folk music, and and uh, uh, we know we know Japanese and and Asian music because we, it sounds we're used to it sounding Asian. If we don't, if we'd never had heard music, we wouldn't automatically associate that with Asia. We would just hear the music. We'd say, we don't know if we, we'd never heard the music before. If we had a, a, a thing where you put faces of, of people from different countries and then played music from them, but you have no knowledge where that music is from and you've never heard music before, you wouldn't be unable totally to place the, the faces with the music. It just doesn't work that way. Music doesn't transmit knowledge like that. But once you know it, you know, well, that sounds like Chinese music. That sounds like Japanese music. That sounds like uh, African music. Because we know, we have an idea of what it sounds like in the instrumentation. Where this can get goofed up is in the Balkans and, and uh, uh, some of those places. Because some of that music sounds really Asian. And it's not. It sounds almost like Indian music, and, and Indian. There's parts of India you can get confused with that music too. But the style that developed in music that uh, in Europe that became known, we call it the classical style, has depended developed over centuries. It didn't happen overnight. This, I mean, I played you Orlando de Lasus. This is like 1500s and change, right? Uh, but and you could hear the roots of of uh, of well-tempered things in there, the 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 cadences and things. That was just intonation. But it took it took a couple hundred years until Bach to code it into an equal equal temperament system that had to develop through to equal temperament. Um, but we call this classical. It was it was defined over centuries and, and uh, many composers. Remember, nothing comes from theory to use. It all comes from use to theory. So composers had to use it, use the systems, try to expand what existing was going on and do new things because they want to keep employed. So you got to have all that novel new thing. What are you showing us new today, Mr. Composer? And uh, remember, there were no women that did any of this stuff. There, there might have been a few hiding around somewhere, but none of them had, they never couldn't sing. Women didn't sing in the, in the churches. They were boys or, uh, or young men. Castratas, they even developed a, a, a castrata thing. But a composer 
certain uh, composer's personal style exists within a larger social style. And I'm going to do a program about the social ramifications and how things change and what composers do based on the politics of where they live. Why, why is it that America would come up with these free-thinking, uh, random uh, composer ideas and Germans would come up with serialism? Why? Why would they, why would they come up with something like that? So, uh, but that's not for this show. These are just devices, right? So, but even in times when all this was going on, when Orlando de Lasso was writing, when Palestrina, when Bach was writing, they did have folk music. Now, folk music was primarily music of the people's theater. They were sung by troubadours and things like that. There's a whole tradition, a troubadour tradition that we adopted into classical music. But mainly what defines classical music is music that takes a simple thing and abstracts it in some way. But it, it, it either improvises on it or it extends it or it uses it as a basis of something. Uh, the, the Renaissance composers and, and a lot of church composers used something called the cantus firmus. Well, these were, these were uh, Gregorian hymn chants, chant hymn lines, and they would take those and use that as the base note of the pieces that they wrote over them, and they would do some free counterpoint and things over them. So, um, but it was, uh, this folk music was going on the whole time. The music of the people's theater, stuff like that, the stuff that uh, Shakespeare would have been uh, heard in the, in the theater that he was involved with there. Uh, those roaming theater groups that would come around to his town. And his dad was a, was a, was a somewhat town official uh, where he lived, and, and he was in charge of booking all the talent for the festivals. And, he, and so Shakespeare got to know all the different traveling theater groups and stuff like that. It was very, very interesting. So it was music of uh, festivals and games and things like that. It could inspire the classical music. The classical music was, was really basically wealthier people. But <clears throat> classical, and we use the word classical, it's now become defined as a, as a time, the classical music. Haydn and Mozart are considered classical composers. And Benda, and there's a few other. But, uh, but in reality, classical music overall is really c c called, would be called art music, or, or uh, I don't know how you would say it, because it's, it's not just folk music, but it contains folk elements, and then the composer is supposed to take those folk elements and then develop them in a way that makes them more intellectually interesting and more challenging. The folk music just has the melody and maybe a chorus, a counter melody, and then that's it. Today we have some composers working in, in the folk range that do a little more extensive things, but not much. Nothing like the sonata form. And we'll talk about sonata form in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in, in the future. Okay, but for classical music is basically art music, music that you have to think about and listen to. It's going to have an intellectual side to it. It's going to modulate in different ways. It's going to, going to try and do something to surprise you. It's going to try and entertain you with the music. It's not so driven by the words. Okay, so um, we have histories, and you can pick them up and read them. You can get them in used bookstores or probably get them at Amazon or any... Uh, 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 you know, any bookseller, any, any decent bookseller. But one is called, both of the history of music, one's by Paul Henry Lang, and the other one by Donald Grout. 
Now, I would recommend reading The History of Western Music by Paul Henry Lang, if you can find a copy of it, because he goes into all kinds of social ramifications of what was happening when composers were working. It's much more interesting for the common reader. It's a rather thick book, so, um, but it's a, it's a very good read. The Grout is more matter-of-fact, like a, like a try-to-be-a-cohesive-history uh, I don't think Grout is so successful. He does have lots of facts in there, but there's things that he misses too. Anyway, so those musics are there. Now, <clears throat> many composers tried to establish new ways of approaching music. You know, some have been uh, incorporated in the general historic flow. All the stuff that was done by Chopin and Liszt and the expanded harmonies and those florid type of writing, that passage, that's all been incorporated. It's all been justified by, by what we call the co common practice. And the whole body is known as the common practice. Now, this is kind of funny if you think about it. We call this common practice. Well, really, this music is not music of the masses in the sense. It's not folk music. It's not popular music in that sense. It's music of the, of the elite. And yet, in this music for the elite, you have to spend some energy. You have to give it back, and you have to learn things about it. You just can't. Some of it is, is, is difficult to get on first hearing. It doesn't immediately get you and, and, and satisfy the simplest urges. You have to think about it. But for this music that caters to the elite, to call itself common is kind of funny. But there's always been experimental minds. There's always been people that were trying to do new things in music. So while Schoenberg was looking for ways to take classical tradition, right, into a new musical direction, the 12-tone stuff. We talked about that. There were lots of other composers, Cowell and uh, other American composers that were looking to write something different than that. They were looking to write a music that was not so abstract. They, wanted, they said pe people need to like music. They need to respond to it. And their reaction created a kind of music that sounded like this. Okay, that's an excerpt from Howard Hansen's Symphony No. 2. Very straightforward stuff and easily analyzed. It fits right into the common practice stuff. There's nothing challenging there. and It's, uh, it's, it's not, not much to grab you intellectually. It's like, you know, kind of almost like uh, elevator music. Okay, not quite that elevator, but it's almost there. Uh, another American composer, Roy Harris, he tried to do something by establishing an American sound. Let's hear what that sounds like.
was an excerpt from Roy Harris Symphony Number no. Three. Still pretty straight ahead. It's just, he's trying to get this American sound here. Is what he's trying to do, and uh, and he's coming up with this uh, this type of a of a sound. I don't know if it's going to last. So to me, it sounds kind of like an offshoot of Aaron Copeland. But Harris was a real rebel. He was a proponent of civil disobedience and was constantly in trouble, legal trouble, anyway, for traffic violations. He never paid his, his traffic fees. His wife uh, and uh, widow, eventually, Joanna Harris, taught piano at UCLA. I went and met her a couple times and talked to her. A friend of mine was taking piano lessons uh, with her, who's now turned to his name is David Cologne. He's now a writer, and he, he writes ex almost exclusively about uh, about uh, um, uh, Kachaturian and uh, some other uh, Armenian writers. He's an Armenian extraction, a wonderful pianist. He premiered a couple pieces of mine when I was a student. But she had some great stories about uh, about Roy and his antics outside of music. His stuff is good. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He could compose, but it's very tame. And compared to what was going on uh, musically in the world, I mean, it's, it's, it's more like orchestrated folk tunes with a little twist or something to it. I, I don't think that was what America is all about. America, I mean, Anton Dvorak wrote the New World Symphony, and that was years earlier. And he kind of captured the spirit of America, this new idea, a new place, new things were happening. There was an urgency of what was going on. There was a, uh, something you felt, some kind of gravitas in what was going on. You listen to Harris's works, you don't feel any of that inside of America, that kind of that uh, inside ball players look that you get, you know, like a baseball analysis. Another composer, William Schumann. Let's take a listen to what he was doing around the same time. Kind of like good old parade music, you know, uh, uh, good stuff. Not not far thinking, not anything well orchestrated. Uh, he would have made a great film composer. Actually, Schumann is a funny thing because he was an administrator all his life and, and also a judge. Uh, he worked for BMI and judged the young composer's uh, competition. And his sound is, uh, it's middle of the road. It's it's well orchestrated stuff, but I mean, there's nothing really exciting there, and uh, in a sense, more exciting than Harris in a way. But but I don't know if he's saying anything or he's literally trying to capture anything. And one of the reasons this music has never taken off. I mean, it's it's tone. We don't know what's going to happen in a hundred years. Maybe he'll be discovered as the greatest secret, and uh, too bad he didn't have more exposure. But he's had plenty in his life, I and mean, they play his symphonies and things. I could go on and play hundreds of composers like this. I could introduce you to composers you've never heard of. Uh, I've listened to most of it, and it gets pretty the same. It's, it's nicely done, uh, not far-thinking, not exciting, and anything like that. Now, we have over in Russia, we have these other guys working. We have a guy, Sergei Prokofiev, 
and we have a guy, Dmitry Shostakovich. So listen to some Prokofiev. I've listened to almost all of William Schumann's works. I've listened to all of Roy Harris's works, the ones that have been recorded. And I can tell you that he, Schumann, could never write anything like this. This has vibrancy. It has life. It has, it's, it's, it's immediate. It's not abstract in this sense, but he's using polytonality there. There's two different keys going on. He's using the intermix of melodies and rhythms, and he's writing this incredibly vibrant work. This is from the Prokofiev Piano Concerto Number no. 3. Um, Shostakovich's stuff is equally uh, uh, interesting. Down in South America, we had Villalobos and, and uh, Alberto Hinastera working and, and writing Latin kind of music that was, was exciting and abstract and those things. So with all these composers of writing this tonal music and all these other things, why didn't these composers take off like the abstraction did? Well, what is it? We have all this great music that's out there. What happened? Why did Schoenberg's 12-tone composition find such favor when, when it was music that's difficult to listen to, difficult to appreciate, and kind of thorny in, in many ways? And I'm going well, to propose a theory here, and this isn't going to make a lot of university people happy, but here it is. For many years, a person could get a degree, in, uh, in a, a PhD in composition, by writing paper music. They never had to hear what they said. When I went to Cal State Northridge, uh, they didn't have any requirement to have your master's thesis performed. You had to get a, a, a senior recital done, but you didn't have to do a master's thesis. You could get right up this big complex work and never have it performed. When I went there, they decided, oh, we're gonna change that. Now, from now on, you have to have your pieces performed. So I was one of the first. I might've been the first. So I wrote this huge, big piece called Dark Illuminations, and, and staged it over three days. And it was basically not received well by the faculty because they didn't consider it abstract enough. But uh, you listen and figure it out.
Now, this is an excerpt from the middle movement of a piece. It's, it's over uh, almost 40 minutes long, the whole thing. It's got electronics in it, and it accompanies dance. And I was restricted by what I could write, by what the dancers wanted. And they, they kind of wanted something, as the woman said, very abstract, but yet tonally so we can listen to it and be able to figure out where we are. But it was, it was interesting. I started this, uh, actually the piece starts with a trill, and I had a very interesting uh, discussion with a professor who uh, who said that nobody starts pieces with trills, and then ten years later I went to a concert and he starts a piece with a trill. So who knows? You know things things in life change. So most academic uh, uh, composers I have heard are are not abstract in the sense of breaking any new ground. Most uh, most academic composers are following some other trend somewhere and trying to stay current. They don't really. There's few that have their own inner voice. In fact, there's few composers anywhere that have their own inner voice. It's a very difficult thing to find. Uh, like wind multiphonics, you heard an ad piece. I threw them in there, and but they're used in a certain way. It's supposed to be harmonically fitting in with the piece. It's not just supposed to be some abstraction to do. So composers basically wrote mind music. This is what they get into this position where a lot of the, a lot of the composers uh, that I've been uh, at concerts and listened to school concerts, it's just... Just notes. I mean, I don't. There's no music there. Once in a while, they'll hit us something, a little phrase or something. But there's no new investigation going on. There's no new school. There's nothing like that started. It's a very hard thing to do. I mean, consider the equal tempered system and the, I, the way we were writing music lasted for hundreds of years before Schoenberg came along and threw everything uh, on its ear. But abstract and technique-driven music had a had a a, a had hit a logical end in a way. You know, Schoenberg did this stuff back in the 20s, right? And, and people are still teaching this in the 1970s and, and 80s in, in classrooms. But it hit a logical end. Where were you going to go? What are you going to do with this stuff after you do that? In essence, uh, the serial music experiment started by Schoenberg lasted until, I think, uh, personally, I think historically they'll say until 4 minutes and 33 seconds of John Cage. He... Where, where this had become so abstract that silence had become equal with music and, in fact, had taken over music. But Cage's silence wasn't silence in the sense of absence of sound. It was in the absence of music, so that you listen to the sounds around you. That was the whole idea of Cage's uh, uh, thing. So in the U.S., abstract music's going away, and, and, uh, and, and people are looking for something else to do it. Along comes Terry Riley and Lamont Young and, uh, and the Minimalist, and they start doing these extended, long tonal things that have no relation to common practice harmonies in the beginning and sounded like this.
that's an excerpt from Stephen Reich's Music for 18 Musicians. And what had happened was that the dominance of atonality was broken. Now composers rushed to minimalism, pell-mell. They couldn't write it fast enough. Composers, that same composer who told me that pieces don't start with trills and, and eschewed any kind of repetition in music is now writing minimalist music. So this thing was spelled the end of, of the Schoenberg abstract experiment to a certain point. Not that it's dead, but for right now, minimalism and the new tonality is holding dominance in music again. It's not the old tonality that we heard of Schumann and Hansen and those type of things. This is a whole new look at tonality and a whole new way of organizing music, and we'll have to see where it goes. It's now going into the post-minimal phase. We'll, we'll see. This is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations, and next week we're going to go a little further into the ramifications of tonality and a new look at tonality.